Psalm 132, God's word, good, beautiful, and true. Psalm of Ascents. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Jaw. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness, your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit in throne, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here, I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it you show us who you are and what you're up to, and thus you show us who we are in you. So I pray as we look at this song that maybe feels strange to our experience, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory, that our hearts might be set upon Him and love Him all the more, and that we might be changed to be like Him. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ever read Scripture and think, what does this have to do with me? What is this talking about? Um, it's not an uncommon experience, especially if you've ever done one of those Bible reading plans where you're trying to read the whole Bible in a year. You're going through Genesis and you're going on a pretty good clip because the stories are interesting. But you get to maybe Exodus after the deliverance and it's talking about laws, it's talking about the tabernacle. Or you get to Leviticus and it's talking about the ins and outs of all these sacrifices and your eyes start to glaze over and you're like, well, I've never sacrificed a calf on an altar. I have no idea what this has to do with me. Well, Psalm 132, I think, is kind of one of those passages. It's got odd names you've probably never heard before. It talks about oaths between David and God. It speaks about God making a horn grow. That's weird by itself. I could keep listing them, but this passage is a bit harder to understand than something like John 3.16. God so loved the world and he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That one's pretty straightforward. This, maybe not so much. Well, to get what's going on in this psalm, to understand how it applies to us, I think we have to look at a specific moment in the life of David, King David in the Old Testament. And to understand what made that moment so significant, we have to zoom out a bit to understand the overarching story of God's redemption that David is a part of. To understand the overarching promise that God has made that runs through Scripture like a thread. The main plot line, if you will. God's promise that I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. This promise 
And those exact words is repeated in one way or another all throughout Scripture. It's directly quoted in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 2 Corinthians, Hebrews, and Revelation. That specific sentence. It's a promise that was symbolized in things like the Ark of the Covenant that was kept in the tabernacle and later the temple. It's the promise that was secured in Jesus who embodied it. It's why we call him the title Emmanuel, God with us. I will be your God and you will be my people. Jesus comes and he removes every obstacle that stands in the way of making that promise happen. And it's the promise that we long to see fulfilled in all its fullness, the one we just read about in Revelation 21. And God will be with us and we will be his people and he himself will be our God and wipe every tear away and abolish death, making all things new. Throughout Scripture, this promise grows. When we first hear it in the book of Genesis, it's like a little acorn. Ever seen an acorn? Of course you've seen an acorn. It's this big, right? Acorn grows into a mighty oak tree over time. Well, the promise of God in Scripture, that I will be your God and you will be my people, it begins like a tiny little acorn in a very dark world. But it's planted and it's nourished by God and it grows in stages. And God's promises to Abraham, His promises to Israel through Moses, His promises to David are all stages of growth in this oak tree as it is going from a tiny acorn to a mighty oak tree. And the fulfillment of this promise, the mighty oak tree, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm saying all that. We're zooming out before I jump into the passage because I think when we're reading Scripture, especially the Old Testament, it always helps to stop and ask where we are in the development of the promise. To stop and ask, where is this passage at in the, in the growth of this mighty oak tree? And the reason why that's important to ask, that, that's why we don't you know, follow the ceremonial laws of Moses. That's why I'm going to eat pork this afternoon. And I don't follow the dietary laws because those laws were given for a specific time in the stage of growth of this oak tree. To go back and follow the ceremonial laws is to act like the mighty oak tree of the promises God and Jesus is still a, till, you know, a tiny sapling that's barely sticking out of the ground. So that's us zooming out. And keep that in mind as we're going through. We're going to zoom back in. The first half of this promise is a snapshot in the life of, uh, or the first half of this psalm is a snapshot at a time when this promise was in a specific stage of its growth, a time during the life of David. And for chronological sake, David lived about a thousand years before the time of Jesus, a little over a thousand years, and he was a descendant, or uh, ancestor, I should say, of Jesus. Now let's zoom back in. We can zoom back into this psalm and to David. The first half of this psalm is about the time when David had become king. And the first action he takes as king is go find the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence with his people, and rest, basically <laughs> grab it from obscurity, grab it from the storehouse that had been kept to put it at the very center of Israel's life in the new capital city of Jerusalem. This was a defining moment in Israel's history. You can read about it if you want to later. Flip over to 2 Samuel 6 and 7. David's become king. And he didn't become king like immediately. He was selected as king, but then he spent years upon years in exile. 
He was often running for his life. He was defending the people of Israel even when he was a fugitive. He was being chased after by the corrupt King Saul who had, established, who had tried to establish the kingdom in the, the vision uh, to, to look like the kingdoms of the world. Just another kingdom in the world set up in, a, in, in oppression and, 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 and chasing after making a name for yourself. That's what it's talking about in verse 1 when it says David and all his self-denial. It's these years of exile. It's these years of running. It's these years of being chased. And what this psalm is doing, I think, is reminding us that David, as big of a historical figure as he is, is not great because he's, he's a conqueror. David's not great just because he's a Jewish Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar. He did that. That was part of his role, that part of his purpose to be a political leader, a military leader that brought peace to Israel by subduing their enemies so they don't have to live in fear. But what made David worth singing about? There's great generals in the history of Israel that don't get songs. What made David worth singing about? He is here. He took the promise of God seriously. We see that in the oath that he made. Look at verses 3 and five, three through 5. David was not content to simply reign. He had become king of this united kingdom. He had vanquished the Philistines who were like the major enemy, the thorn in Israel's side for generations upon generations. But the first thing that David does when he takes the throne is to go find the Ark of the Covenant to bring it to this new capital city of Jerusalem. It's because David recognizes that God is up to something bigger than him. God's not interested in just giving David and his family a throne. God is furthering his promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. Now the Ark of the Covenant, uh, it actually kind of looks like what you see in Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark. They did a pretty good job of replicating the, the description of what it is. But if, you do, if you've never seen Indiana Jones... Um, uh, well, it's awesome. But anyway, if you've never seen Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ark of the Covenant was a box. It was made of wood. It was covered with gold. In fact, uh, Ark, that word, is it's a Latin word for chest. See, Ark of the Covenant sounds cool, but you could call it the box of the promise, um, which doesn't sound as like, you know, Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was the Ten Commandments etched on stone. There was Aaron's staff, Aaron the first priest um, under Moses. And there was a jar of manna that, as God had miraculously provided for his people in their wilderness uh, wanderings. And the ark, it was the symbolic footstool of God's throne. It was a physical symbol of his presence with his people. It wasn't that God was contained in the box. In fact, the thread of the story of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament is God reminding them over and over again, I'm not in this box. <laughs> this is not a magical totem that you can tote around. In fact, there's some tragic stories in the Old Testament where the Israelites are like, we got to go to battle? Go grab the Ark. And they drag the Ark out and they're like, we got, we got God, we got this magic you know, bomb of God's presence and it never goes well. It never goes well. Um, but the reason it was given under Moses was so that as Israel went through their wilderness wanderings, as they traveled into the land that God was giving to them, that they would be reminded that God was with them. That they would never forget 
that God was with them. And God wasn't just with them in a general sense. He had condescended in a sense in giving them this symbol of the Ark and the Covenant. Something they could point to. Something they could say, this is a reminder to us, fitted to us. So that we can understand He is with us. But at the time of David, at the time of David, the ark had been left mostly in obscurity. The Israelites had tried to become a kingdom like the kingdoms of this world. And Saul, the immediate predecessor of David, and the ark was kind of stored away and forgotten. Actually, that's kind of like the end of Indiana Jones. But it was stored away, left, and kind of forgotten. It was actually at this guy's house. It was at a guy's house. He and his family were tasked to take care of it, but it was kind of just like out of the mind. So when David becomes king, his first action is to find the ark in, it, in its obscurity and set it at the center of Israel's life. And it's David's action here that says God, not me, is the true king of Israel. That's what the first nine verses of this psalm is remembering. This time. It's David's resolve to do this. The finding of the place where it was in, verses, in verse uh, 6 when it talks about we heard it, we heard it in uh, Ephratha, however you pronounce that. <laughs> we came upon it in the fields of Jar. That's where it had been left in obscurity. Those are the locations. And then it describes this parade of celebration as they are carrying the ark into Jerusalem and the joy as they danced and sang truly one of the most significant moments in Israel's national history. So this song would have been written years and years and years later, looking back at this event. And as it was sung by the travelers to Jerusalem, they were heading to worship in Jerusalem, the place where the ark had been carried. And as they were traveling and singing this song, they were reminded that they were not the first people to take this path. In fact, as they entered Jerusalem, they would be entering the exact way that the Ark of the Covenant had come into Jerusalem. It was a reminder to them that this pathway was one taken before it was taken by them, it was taken by God. That they were following steps that they did not have to chart out. And as they came into Jerusalem, they weren't just going to a cool party, as great as the festivals were. They were being swept up into God's story of redemption. They were being swept up into the ongoing story of God fulfilling that promise that we talked about. That He would be their God and they would be His people. Now for all its joy, for all of its joy, this song is not a song about the good old days. I think there's a danger. Uh, I think I've heard it all my life. People talking about the good old days. It's not the way it used to be. And yeah, I mean, things have gotten worse in some ways and got better in lots of ways. But uh, there's this danger of always looking to the past. As that was the golden age, and it's degraded since then. That's not what this passage is. It's looking back to a significant moment in Israel's history, but it's looking back so it can look forward. That's where it turns in verse 10 for the rest of the psalm. Because the end of the story is not David's oath to God. It talks about that in verses 3 through 5. As great of a moment as that was, it was part of the stage of growth in this mighty oak tree 
that was meant to lead on. It's kind of like if you just stopped there and said that was the good old days, it would, it would be like a parent excited that their baby started to crawl and then being like, this is great, we're done. Yay, crawl. The kid doesn't start and you're like, wait, something's gone wrong. That's what's going on here. David bringing the ark into Jerusalem was like the crawling <laughs> of the promise along that was meant to continue to grow. Because as great as this story is that we read about David finding the ark, ultimately David cannot be trusted. You know the story of David as he won power, as he was established as king. He lost that clear perspective that led him to seek the ark out in the first place. He lost that clear perspective that he was reigning and this was part of God's ongoing plan. David eventually lies. David manipulates. David sexually assaults and arranges the murder of a friend. He goes way off track. So this psalm is not us looking back and saying, how great was David? Man, he was so good. Yeah, he did something great at a time. He does look at that, but it looks back so we can look forward. That's what it's talking about in verse 11. It speaks about God's oath to David. Notice in verse 11 how it speaks about the oath. It calls it a sure oath that he will not revoke. In verse 2, when it spoke about David's oath, it didn't say that. But when it speaks of God making a promise, God making an oath, it assures us that God's promise will not fail. His commitment to His promise will not fail. But how will God do this? I think in the Old Testament, the original singers of this song, as they thought about how God would work in the future to bring a kingdom that would not end, they probably thought of it in the sense of a glorious, victorious king walking in, maybe with an army that conquers the world and rules in peace. After all, it speaks in verse 17 of God raising up a horn for David. Or it speaks of a lamp on his anointed one. In the old times of the Old Testament, a horn was a sign of strength. It still is. Think about what we name uh, football teams. We have the Rams, the Vikings, or basketball teams, the Bulls. Horns are signs of strength. They're animals with horns. And for this passage to speak of God raising a horn, it's like speaking of a knight drawing its sword before battle. It raises a horn, raises strength. And the point was God will fight the battle for His people. God will accomplish bringing His purposes about. That's the image of the Lamb. Is God winning this victory and glorifying His chosen King, His anointed one? That's what that means. It's a picture of nothing but victory. But if you know anything about where the story of David goes, not just in David's life, but after David, it doesn't go well. David's good intentions don't even last his lifetime, and his sons don't remain faithful. They did not see their role as king in terms of God's covenant promises, but they treated the throne like a possession to have and to be used for their own power. But the unfaithfulness of the house of David is not the end of the story. God is still committed to doing what he says in verse 14, that Zion, that Jerusalem, will be the place where his presence Rests where he is enthroned, but it's not in a way we would expect. The rotten family tree of David, out of that rotten family tree, God calls forth in the womb of the Virgin Mary without the help of any man, 
his faithful king, his son, Jesus. In Jesus, God accomplishes and secures that promise that he reiterated time and time again. It's what I spoke about it earlier. It's why Jesus is given the title Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus is God with us, not just God with us in a kind of ethereal sense. It's God with us as one of us. The eternal Son of God becoming a man, becoming one of us, and healing all that ails us. He assumes it so that He might heal it for us. And in King Jesus, God removes every obstacle that stands between Him fulfilling His promise. And so our sin stands in the way, God, Jesus atones for it. The enmity, uh, the division that stands between us and God is there. God rec Jesus reconciles us. Satan and the powers of darkness are at work to trip us up and to bar us from the presence of the life-giving God. Jesus overcomes Satan and even death. Jesus brings the kingdom of God to earth, establishing a place where our worth is measured by this fact that we are loved by God. But how does Jesus do it with an army at his back marching into Jerusalem to take over the world? No, Jesus does it when he is lifted up on a cross. He speaks about it in John chapter 12, verse 32. He says, as I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus in his sacrificial death accomplishes a victory that is deeper and bigger than him just marching in or even him being a David that brings political and military peace for a generation. At the cross, Jesus assumes the penalty for our sins so that there may be no more just wrath against us. So that we can walk all out from under the thumb of our sin and all that it may earn, that we might walk out from under the power of other people's sin against us and the way it mars us and, and, and scars our hearts, and that we might step into true freedom. And in His resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ is crowned and adorned with glory. He is lifted up. He spoke about it, given the name above every name. And the good news of that is that glory that belongs to Him is given to us as a gift. And so what awaits us in the future, today even, is not dishonor from God, it's glory. It's vindication. So how is God applying, asking us or calling us this morning to apply Psalm 132 to our lives as we're kind of ending this sermon? Well, I've got a couple of thoughts. The first one is this. Know that you are secure. Know that your salvation is secure. The salvation that is won for us is won by Jesus. And we are loved not because of our own power. Guys, I can't trust myself to consistently set an alarm to wake myself up in the morning. I cannot set myself up right with God. I can't do it. I'm not secure because of my own power. I'm not secure because of David. I'm not secure because of any political or religious leader that I'm connected to. They all fall short over and over again. But we are secure now and forever in Jesus. 
who didn't just so show self-denial for a moment like David. It was a great moment in his life, but it unraveled. But Jesus, who, as we read about in our call to worship in Philippians 2, emptied himself of the glory that was due to him as God so that he might come to us in the very depths of our darkness and find us to bring us home. And he is now lifted up. He's given that name that's above every name so that we might call on his name and find that we cannot win ourselves. That thing that we cannot win ourselves, that thing that no leader can win for us, he can. And in him we are clothed with righteousness. The second thing, way I think we can apply to this to ourselves is, is this. That we might know that we are loved and that God's purposes to dwell with us will be. If God's grace has found us today, then His purpose is to be our God and us to be His people, to wipe every tear from our eyes, to abolish death and make all things new will come to be. To say it as one songwriter I love says it, if it's not okay, then it's not the end. If it's not okay then it's not the end. In the here and now, we will only partially experience the fullness of the glory that God has for us. But in the new heavens and new earth, when God makes all things new, when that which is wrong is made right, when that which is crooked is made straight, we will experience and walk into and dance in the fullness of what that is. God's not just at work to bring us a salvation that makes us feel good today. As great as it may make us feel to know that we are loved. He's not just giving us a salvation that will sustain us for today. He is making all things new. And because of that, we don't have to get caught in the trap of looking to some good old days. I mentioned that earlier. But i, I, I got to be frank. It has driven me nuts as a Christian for all my life to hear about some good old days that we've lost. And that we got to get back to. And maybe we need to make a political coalition to angle and get this thing done or that thing done. The posture of the Christian is never looking back to some good old days. It is always looking forward in hope. Knowing that no matter what happens, God's promises will be fulfilled. He's making all things new. And third, the third way to apply this, I think that this can give us a posture to take into our present and our future. That as we live our lives here on this earth, we look back to a salvation that's secure and accomplished in Jesus. We look forward and hope to the fullness of the realization of what He's accomplished being applied in the new heavens and new earth. But in the here and now, we get an angle to look at our lives. And here's what I mean. As we look forward in our lives, you, you may be working your career, you're looking forward to retirement, you're asking questions of what I want to do. And usually when we speak of retirement, our minds are populated with vacation homes and RVs and trips we're going to take. And we're going to retire and it's going to be this thing and that thing. But I think God gives us a different angle. I think because He is at work, because we have a secured love already set on us, because He is making all things new, that we can commit the resources that we have in our hands to Him for the sake of His kingdom. Now that's not to say don't take vacations, do. Vacations are great. That's not saying don't buy an RV, they're a lot of fun. 
It's not saying don't get a vacation house. That's awesome too if you can do it. But what I'm saying is we get to dream a different dream. Not a dream house, not a dream vacation. We get to walk in the reality of living in a world knowing that the end of our lives is not the end. Knowing that we don't have to see every sight before we die on this earth because we are going to see every sight on this earth made new with no time. And so we can commit those resources that have been given into our hand to love. We can sacrifice in the here and now knowing that nothing entrusted to God is lost. Knowing that we will not lose anything. We will not be put to shame. We will be vindicated. We will be honored. And so we can live in the here and now following after the Lord Jesus Christ. Who certainly lived a life of sacrifice. But was vindicated himself. And in him we are as well. And so this morning, know you are secure. One for you by the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of God's love and reconciliation with Him that you did not earn and so you cannot lose. It is yours as a gift. Know that what awaits you in the future, long after your struggle with sin and the sins against you are over, is a world where God dwells with us in perfect peace where all things are made new. And know that for whatever life you have left on this earth. God is calling you to follow after Him with what you have in your hand, with the words in your mouth, with the desires of your heart. And He will not let you down. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for the encouragement of the Gospel. For what we've heard here in Psalm 132, this, this uh, snapshot of this wonderful time in the history of Israel, the Lord, a wonderful time that points forward with an arrow to the glories and the fulfillment of your promise in Jesus Christ. For though David may fail, Jesus does not. For though every leader in front of us, political or religious, every pastor is going to let us down, you do not. So I pray, God, imprint this upon our hearts. Make us people who don't, do not live in anxiety that we might be lost to you, but we are washed in your love. The love that is set upon us and will be ours. And that all that Jesus has bought for us will come to us because he will bring it to us. Make us a people of hope, Lord. That long for the day when all things are made new by you. And as we live in the here and now, together walking through this broken world. Make us a people who look like Jesus. And putting our time, putting our hearts, putting our words, putting our money the service of you and service of others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.